My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. And joining me is Von Stein, is the writer and director of the movie Terminal in theaters and available on VOD May 11th. Terminal stars Margot Robbie, Simon Pegg, and Mike Myers, and is produced by Lucky Chap Entertainment, the production company that brought you I, Tanya. What an excellent introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know how to take a press packet and that boil it down, down yeah. to a paragraph. That was, that was excellent. <laughs> God, I wish someone had taught me to do that. Vaughn, <laughs> uh, congratulations, first of all. Oh, thank you so much. You're out here. You did your, you did your red carpet walk yesterday. Pink carpet. Neon pink carpet. Really? Yeah. Ah, yeah. well, that makes sense, yeah. right? Yeah. There's a lot of ne- neon in your movie. Yeah. Right? The, the whole look of it. A neon drenched nightmare, as I've pretentiously invented yesterday during the press junket. It was, throw around a lot. It was. It has a real... Um, I, it, would you be offended if I said sort of a comic book look? No, not at all. Okay. No, no. The, I mean, the three sort of main passions that I drew from when I created Terminal were film noir, which mm-hmm. I've sort of had an unhealthy obsession with since I fell in love with film when I was about 16, uh, particularly the evolution of noir. So I love, you know, what Winding Refn did with Drive and Only God mm-hmm. Forgives. Right, and, right. I mean, obviously, what what Scott did with uh, with Blade Runner in the in the sort of sci-fi noir uh, subgenre, and it, for me, I just think it's a fascinating. It's, it, it, there are so many tools within noir to to aid in storytelling. There's so many sort of character archetypes. There's so much uh, characterization that's already done for you because we understand the conventions of noir sort of unconsciously as film viewers because it was it's been so prevalent. And I really wanted to draw on that. And I, I always love dystopian cinema and dystopian literature. And I, I really wanted to sort of fish where those two rivers met. And, um, and then the, uh, the third thing was that, as you were saying, the aesthetic of, uh, of the graphic novel, the, the sort of dark urban fairy tale where, where you can heighten and sensationalize things. And somewhere within all of those kind of unhealthy obsessions, the, the, the terminal was born. Sin City came to mind a little bit too as yeah, I was watching it. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I, I really, I, I think both of them are great. And I... I I love what Frank Miller did with them. I'm not a huge graphic novel fan. I'm, I'm much more a fan of them. You know, I, I think they're beautiful. I think aesthetically they're mm-hmm. amazing. And I love seeing a story sort of unfold visually before my eyes. I, I think they're brilliant. And what Rodriguez and Miller did, I think, is astonishing. I think it's really vivid. And, and it was very groundbreaking. You know, so much stuff riffed off of it, riffed off of it after, uh, you know, after it came out. And that was definitely a, that was definitely a touchstone for us. And and this was filmed in Hungary, right? Yes, Budapest. Um, and uh, and yet the place looks like you could pick your European city, you could almost pick your American city. Is it purposely? I mean, it it, it revolves around a terminal, sort of a, a subway terminal, right? And a, an attached diner, mm. and sort of all the sort of the ins and outs around it. Um, 
but you're purposely not making it a city that anybody can say. No, our, uh, the idea had always been to make it reminiscent but not recognisable as, as our world, as mm-hmm. our own, and to, to sort of create a, a, an anachronistic collage and, and utilise uh, you know, different eras, different periods, different styles in, in everything. That, that was sort of a real... Uh, that was a, a really important thing that we wanted for the DNA of the film, that everything would feel otherworldly but somehow like we could touch it with our fingertips we we could understand you know where all of the where everything came from but seeing them all together in this sort of kaleidoscopic slightly surreal way was was this sort of was the world that we wanted to create budapest was was perfect for it i mean it's a beautiful beautiful city and it's got an amazing well an amazing and rich architectural history you've got the sort of faded grandeur of Austro-Hungary of the Austro-Hungarian um, Empire, and that collides kind of very ungainly, Lily, in some places. Ungainly, we'll go with that. Sure. Um, in some places, with the sort of uh, utilitarian functionality of sort of soft block architecture, you know, from the from when it was part of the USSR. Mm-hmm. And we, I, when I first envisaged uh, Terminal before we'd even wrecked uh, Budapest, I had sort of described that within the script. It, it, the the, the character of the vast anonymous city was so important to me and became so important to the incredible cinematographer Chris Ross and to the unbelievable production designer Richard Bullock. And we, we wanted to create, yeah, that sense of reminiscent but not recognisable to, to, to create a sort of a world in which, um, you know, these heightened sensationalist stories could, could exist and could flourish and these dark and dangerous characters could interact. I am writing down, you're probably wondering what I'm writing down, uh, vast and anonymous, <laughs> reminiscent, yet, what did you say? Reminiscent, but not recognizable. Yes. Our own. Reminiscent, yet not recognizable. And the reason I'm, I'm writing this down is if you just took those four words, right, and, and laid them out right up front in your script, now a set decorator, an imaginative mm. locations person could could create that, yeah. you know? Um, it, it tells you what the scope is. You te- it tells you what the tone is. It tells you that it has to feel familiar, um, but not just those four words. So I'm just, just letting everybody know. Margs would love you for that because she <laughs> constantly constantly takes the mick out of me about the fact that I, I'm obsessed with those words <laughs> and I use them all the time. Deep, dark, dank dystopia is the other one. Good, good. But, but yeah, it's exactly as you say, that, that you know, literally the first description, we, we start on a high and wide over the city and, and that vast anonymous cityscape, reminiscent but not recognisable as our own, I think is, is exactly the, uh, the wording in the script, if I remember correctly. Now, um, I'm going to have you tell everybody a little bit about what the movie's about because... If I describe it, I might give some stuff away. So how would you describe, as briefly as possible, the plot sure. of this? Um, it's, a, it's a sort of labyrinthine plot. It is uh, an interweaving dual narrative. Uh, one story about two bickering hitmen uh, in an apartment together, um, sort of stepping on each other's toes as the clock carries, counts down for them to carry out a hit. And the other story is about a terminally ill teacher who failing miserably to pluck up the courage to kill himself, wanders into an all-night cafe and strikes up a conversation with a kooky yet macabre waitress. <laughs> and the story, the two uh, narratives uh, sort of interweave and start colliding, and um, they're joined uh, narratively by this quirky, eccentric janitor uh, who might know more than he lets on. 
And, don't, uh, don't, don't. and when you first started to write this, did you have both of those narratives in mind or did you just start with the seed of her? It started with her. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I, I loved the idea of firstly a female protagonist. I really wanted to do something that would subvert genres that maybe had a slight element of misogyny within them in their, in their checkered past, like, you know, where, where she could utilize the tools and wiles of, of, you know, the, the sort of the noir femme fatale, the damsel in distress. Uh, she could be all things to all men and sort of wreak her, her vengeance on, on them by you by sort of being whatever they wanted her to be. And, played unbelievably and brilliantly by Margot. She is amazing. I mean, she's just astonishing in it. Absolutely incredible. And, you know, that we, it is a mercurial part. It, it, you know, I wrote it in the hope that someone could bring that sort of, uh, you know, chameleonic, like, shape-shifting ability to it that, that she could change. And, you know, to have someone of that caliber, to have that amount of talent that she can change tiny things in performance, you know, moments in accent, uh, physicality, just the shape of her body. Like, I mean, just, just amazing. An absolute pleasure to work with her. But she was, yeah, that, that, the character of Annie was the starting point. That was sort of the genesis of, 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 um, of the idea this, uh, that at the centre of this web there was this female character who, who was able to uh, manipulate those around her with, uh, with, with all the tools at her disposal. Did you work once uh, once Margot's company acquired the script, did you continue to work with the company to develop the script or did they take it on sort of post-development ready to, to produce? No, we... Um, so it, it was a, an amazing sort of kismet situation. It was, it was real serendipity. Um, Tom Ackley and Josie McNamara, who are Margot's producing partners and really close friends, we're, we're all really good friends, we were runners and assistant directors together in British film first. We, we, you know, kind of came up through the ranks together. And we always joked about making films. They'd always wanted to produce. I'd always written and, and you know, had a, had a view to direct. And um, we got talking and I, I had written what I would consider, you know, the, the, the proper first draft in, in 2013. And I think uh, late 2013 it was, yeah. And, and they, uh, they had a read of it in 2014 and it was sitting on their kitchen bench and Margs, the guy, they were all living together at the time. Margs was shooting Tarzan in London, and she was living in Clapham with them. And she picked it up and started reading it when she was having a coffee one morning and, and kind of loved it. Um, and we sort of took it from there, and we, we sat down a few weeks later. I, I knew her socially. We'd, we'd met and got on really well, and we just had a great meeting. And we started really working and honing and polishing the script, and we talked in depth about the character, and there were quite a few elements that I hadn't been brave enough to bring to the table. There were, there were things, uh, stories that I wanted and subplots within, within her character that I had in my mind that weren't on the page, and she just drew them out. Like, you know, she's, she was so bold and assertive in the way that she wanted this character to be, and, you know, developing it and, and honing it w- with her was, I mean, an absolute pleasure. I mean, she, she's brilliantly intelligent. You know, she, she really understands story. She, she's a, a, you know, a, a great reader of scripts. She really understands narrative. She understands character. She's got a great ear for dialogue. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal working with her on it. Now, clearly you're a guy who has, you have motifs, you have this vision, you have these stories you want to tell. Um, was there anything you had to let go of in the process of going from script to screen? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, but we—I <laughs> mean, lots of words. 
<laughs> lots of words. It, um, we had a, an amazing producer called David Barron, who um, is probably most known for uh, producing the Harry Potter series and Cinderella and Tarzan, which is how we became involved with him through Margot. Um, and when he first got the script, it was woefully long, far too long. And he really got us to sit down and cut into it and to trim and to trim and to get it tight and cohesive and sort of, you know, narrative and character and, and dialogue driven, but at the same time, not, you know, overly wordy. It's, it's you know, there are, there, are, there were great, there were things that I loved that, you know, just needed to go. And it was, it was about, you know, being able, <laughs> being able to, to take that on the chin and, and sort of, uh, you know, start get the red pen out, really. There was, there was a lot of that, yeah, and I think that's really important. I, you know, I, and sometimes you're too close to it, of course. As, as a writer, you think everything's wonderful and they're all wrong. They're all idiots, damn it, you know. But um, it's, it's being able to, to try to be pragmatic and to be objective and also to, to listen to, you know, brilliant producers with decades of experience when they say, cut it, it's too long. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you said, okay, we're all friends. You said you started as runners. You also mentioned assistant directors. So when you say runner, is is that the uh, equivalent of uh, PA? Yes, exactly, Uh, yeah. So production assistant. But going from a production assistant to assistant director Mm. is is a big climb. So we, uh, it might be a terminology thing, because in the UK we call, so the assistant directors, runners are are the sort of the base base step on the ladder of Mm -hmm. being an assistant director. So we have uh, production runners who mm-hmm. run for the production department and assistant director runners who run on the floor, floor runners. So assistant, sort of an assistant to the director. We, uh, no, more, uh, so the assistant directors as a department, mm-hmm. we, our job is to facilitate the creative vision of a director. So we control all the human elements, we look after cast, we look after stunts, we look after crowd, and then as well as that we... Um, effectively run logistics for all of the other departments on behalf of the director so that everything's brought together, everything runs on time, everything is as per call sheet. So just like an AD does here. Exactly, okay, so it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. I'm just, I guess I, you know, it, in my head, I'm thinking, God, PA to AD is like, that's, there are... Oh, that know, transitional... Yeah, yeah, that's that's a... That's, yeah, it's, there's lots of field promotions in uh, you, in the UK film industry, luckily. It's, <laughs> it's not quite as regimented. If you if you start as a runner and you dig in and you you know you get into a team, you tend to move up to becoming a third assistant director, which I guess you would call a trainee mm-hmm. assistant director. Uh, pretty, you know, you can make... You can move up pretty quickly. So you... Um, some of the things that you were an AD on was Tarzan, uh, Heart of the Sea... The Fifth Estate, Kick-Ass 2, Quantum of Solace, The Dark Knight, Sherlock Holmes, Harry Potter Part 7 and 8, Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, On Stranger Tides. Colon, very good. (laughs) (laughs) And World War Z. Mm. That is a lot of experience. So, So is that where, I mean, that takes place over how many years, um, Uh, you being on on those movies? I mean, my, my, literally, the first thing I did after I came out of university, I handed my dissertation in, uh, and I had worked on Stardust uh, between my second and third year of university, the Matthew Vaughan film. Um, and I met a wonderful AD on that called Sarah Hood, who um, phoned me uh, it's literally the week before I handed it in. We'd stayed in contact because I knew I'd, I'd sort of fallen in love with film sets. I knew I wanted to, to kind of, you know, make my bones on, on, on set. And she said... Um, You've got to come to London. I'm working on a film. It's called Rory's First Kiss. I was like, that sounds awful. What's that? <laughs> and she was like, just come. Just get in your car and come. Honestly, I'm phoning you because you'll love it. 
Stop and being judgy. It, it was totally. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was brilliant. Isn't it? I, I, I want to be a wannabe runner who's judging a film because it sounds like a rom-com. <laughs> and I, I turned up to Unit Base and I vividly remember realising when, when I walked into the production trailer that that was the working title of The Dark Knight. So that was... We, so Chris Nolan brings his films back to the UK. Um, he always, they always do a leg in the UK. So it's it's just a great way to keep it under wraps. Yeah. So his wow. Uh, the conception was called Oliver's Arrow. Uh, I think Interstellar was called Flora's Letter. You know, they're all his his kids. He he names it and gives it. A, oh, that yeah, is it's amazing. Awesome. And I was just you know. So the, I think the first scene. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I was locking off somewhere. You know, shouting, rolling in cup. But the first scene I saw shot uh, was when uh, Commissioner Gordon becomes Commissioner Gordon and, and the Joker claps him in the cage. Yeah, and it's like, as soon as you see that, I was like, this is what I want to do forever. This is just unbelievable, you know. And that, and that movie really changed the look, you know, of superhero movies as we'd known yeah, them it's, prior. it's totally genre-defining. Right, yeah, so there absolutely. you are, just, yeah. just experiencing film history. Yeah. And it does, yeah, and thinking about, like, the look of this particular film. Mm. So all of these, these movies must have influenced you. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, uh, probably more in a practical way than a creative way a lot of the time because I, I had the pleasure of, of obviously working with directors and actors sure. and producers and seeing what they did amazingly in terms of like maximizing their day and you know it was it was sort of that practical that practical side that I, I drew most of my sort of inspiration from rather than the creative inspiration if you see what I mean like you know just in terms of learning how to interact with actors the, how the best directors give notes how the best directors communicate their ideas clearly to to their crew around them how they retain infinite patience how you know they can smile through you know impromptu rain and all the crazy things that ruin you know days on set and yeah I mean for me it, it was a you know i I love being an AD. I absolutely love. I love being on set. I love making films, and to be that close to you know geniuses and to be helping, to be really helping make the film. I I, I loved it. I was fiercely proud of it. Yeah. Okay. So, how do the best directors give notes? Uh, oh, so I work with Ron Howard on Heart of the Sea, who is just the nicest guy in show business. Anyway, he's absolutely lovely, and he he has this sort of tacit understanding of, of acting, obviously having been a brilliant actor. Sure. Um, but I, I think with him as well, it's, it's like a, a sort of, uh, there's like a kind of innate empathy. Like he really, like he, you know, Heartless, he was tough. Like, you know, we, there was a lot, you know, we were on gimbal rigs and huge waves crashing over actors and, you know, we were doing night shoots. It was cold and he, he would just, it's like he understood like what it felt like. I mean, obviously I'm sure because he was wet and cold as well, but he wasn't wearing a, you know, one layer of costume. But he would, you know, kind of get in there and, and give these really precise notes. And, you know, when the scene was a, was a dramatic scene, when, it, you know, we were pitching and tossing, he'd, he'd almost like echo the sense of urgency in the way he gave the notes, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. I always think that's a really nice thing that I've picked up. Like I try and give notes within the emotion of the scene. Like and if, it's, if it's an intimate scene, I try and keep my notes quiet and short if it's a loud scene you know I, I try and sort of you know echo that you know sort of echo the emotion of it um which I, I think I think works quite well actually and yeah I really picked that up from him uh, Bill Condon who I did Beauty and the Beast and the Fifth Estate with he is an incredibly mild and just wonderful man really intelligent guy and he he has a, a sort of strong theatrical background as well and he does so much of his sort of directing in the in the room in the rehearsal room 
and and he I've, I mean I was very fortunate to sit in a lot of rehearsals with him and he's so precise and he really asks questions of the actor at the table as well you know so that they feel so confident when they go on to set that they can really you know strut their stuff like they should and yeah he he was I really took a lot in terms of rehearsal from him what about uh, storytelling so there's how he gives how a director would give notes to an actor mm-hmm. but as far as crafting the story on the set or making choices for shots or maybe deciding not to film a scene did again you're now you're you're part of that process as an ad mm-hmm. as well what did you learn uh and from whom that's a really good question um i think that one of the things that for me as a director um, and especially as a first-time director, I had the most astonishing cinema- cinematographer. Chris Ross is unbelievably talented, absolutely brilliant. And I had a camera operator called Ian Mackay, who I've known for years. I knew him when he was a, a, a clapper loader. And they just had the most unbelievable eye, and they understood the subject matter. Like, they got it. And we talked at length about about things, you know, the influences on what we wanted to... We, what, how we wanted to compose frames, what we wanted it to look like, what we wanted, what we wanted to achieve... And I really, like, as much as possible, I, I just, I really wanted to just let them get on with it because their ideas were always better than mine. There were certain things that I, I was very tight on because I knew I, I would, the way, you know, the way I wanted to cut the film in terms of, I wanted it to have a very fluid transitional feel and I knew there were camera moves I would need to achieve that. But as soon as I explained that to Chris, he'd just come up with something better every time. I mean, <laughs> that's their job. They have, they have incredible eyes. Yeah, that's good. But how about this? Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, no, sh- sh- you go and sit in the chair over there. We'll sort of <laughs> just, you know, go and play Angry Birds. Um, but, um, uh, you know, and watching again, Ron, uh, Ron Howard is working with uh, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who's an astonishing cinematographer. And he would really, you know, hand him his head. He really, you know, he, he had bought into ADM's vision of the film and he would, he would, go with it but of course at the same time you you know as a director you you need to have a holistic overview of the film right you need to you need to know what you want it to feel like and you know so you know at the same time he would obviously be very you know he'd be very keen to make sure that his you know his story was being told the way he wanted it to so again it kind of goes back to having the words that a writer would use that you could convey to a cinematographer exactly. to be able to express the shot. So again, going back to vast and anonymous, which I think I said right finally. Anonymous? Yes. Oh my yes. God. I'm gonna, you know I'm going to wake up at 2 in the morning and be like, I said anonymous. I did. <laughs> it's, it's not like a Muppet. Yeah. <laughs> vast and anonymous. But if you, if you say, if, if you have the right expression, if you have the, the right words you can pass on, so you have to sort of think like a writer in order to have the direction meet your intention for me yeah absolutely yeah. because first and foremost because terminal started on the page and also you know i knew i, I knew how i wanted it to be conveyed on the page and, and i just think with anything in filmmaking and so many things it's it's communication it's clarity of communication and if you can if you can convey that idea effectively and quickly especially when you're under pressure and you're you know running out of time and whatever else is going on on, on set you um you know, you're going to maximize your day. And, and that's, that's, where, that's what, you know, is the money drain. It's, it's when you're, you know, you're sitting around moving cranes because, you know, a conversation hasn't happened or, you know, when you're, when you're having to redo things because you've moved on and seen that, that you, you needed, you, you haven't turned around properly on it. You know, that, that stuff is so vital. And, and I do, for me, and probably because I lack the intelligence to not have it in front of me, like that does start with the script. And it is a 
privilege to be able to direct what you've written and you can include important things in the script. But yeah, it's, you know, just even on a practical filmmaking standpoint, just, just be clear and concise and precise with the information you pass on because that's going to save you so much time and so much money. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I don't know, ask you a cheesy question, <laughs> cheesy Hollywood question, but I have to ask about working with Simon Pegg. Oh, my God, Simon oh, Pegg. Dream. Ah! And, you know, he's so good in this, too, playing a, a role it doesn't look like he's played before. Mm-hmm. Very professorial, mm. um, projects older than he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I was sort of like, wow. It was even, even hard for me to imagine him in comedy because of how intense he was with this particular role. I just think, you know, brilliant. So, how, first of all, how do you get Simon Pegg? And then how do you work with somebody like that? Well, he's, he's extremely difficult. Um, he's a, he's a, a really nasty person. <laughs> I mean, I, so, I, so I, I, I had a poster of Shaun of the Dead on my wall at university in my first year. He is my abs- like one of my absolute heroes. I, I think he is, he is just astonishingly funny. He is an incredibly kind and generous man and I, he he's just brilliantly funny but he he has such depth like he he is what he's a world-class actor world-class actor and um we caught him at a really zeitgeisty moment he was in between mission impossible and ready player one and we sat down to have lunch after he'd, he'd read the script and liked it and he was really he really wanted to to roll his sleeves up and, and you know get in the trenches and do something kind of indie and it would, I just remember it vividly. We were having lunch, and he just said, "Look, I, you know, I think it's great. I'd, I'd love to do it if you'll have me." And at which point, I nearly fell off my chair. You know, it's just like to hear that from from Simon was just amazing. And he doesn't have to be pushed out of a truck or no, fall no, out of a plane, no, yeah. right? He <laughs> yeah. can just sit there in a yeah. diner. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> and, and, and and also that he has, uh, you know, he has incredible range. And and I I wrote Terminal um, as a as a jet black comedy with some jet black comedy elements. You know, I. Uh, I'm hugely influenced by by Tarantino and Martin McDonough. I love what they do. I love the way they can imbue sort of dark characters with that sense of humour. And, and to me, it's something I've always loved. I've always really enjoyed it. And um, he elevated the comic elements of Bill in this kind of incredibly sort of pathos, pathos-driven performance, which he plays a really difficult role in. You know, he's a, you know, someone trying to sort of come to terms with their terminal illness and, and failing. And he just... He, he brought an amazing warmth to it, but he also brought a real sort of emotional depth. And, and I'll be forever grateful to him for that performance because he was incredible. And the relationship between him and Margot, which is pivotal in the film, absolutely pivotal, was so incredibly executed. I mean, I would just sit there watching the monitor, just like forgetting to say cut, just like <laughs> clapping like a seal. You know, it's just amazing. Now, but you're also, when it came, comes to Simon Pegg, directing a writer. So... Did his writer hat ever come on? Did he ever change a line? Did he ever suggest an edit? Yeah, I mean, we 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 were very fortunate in that um, I was very fortunate because both Margs and Simon really wanted to rehearse a lot, and we really pushed for that. Even even though we didn't have you know as much time or money as as you know, often the first things to get shaved off are rehearsal days, right? They're not on camera; they're the ones that that you know they come up for grabs very quickly, and both of them gave up their time to do it because they wanted to get, they wanted it to be brilliant and you know they succeeded um he he was so respectful of, uh, respectful of the material which was amazing 
but there would be moments where where his improvisation in rehearsal or little turns of phrase or things that would come out of those of of you know of getting it on its feet and 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 seeing what it was going to actually work like that you know you, it, it wasn't so much that they were he was saying should we do let's do this it was things would come up that were just so much better than what i'd written and we'd include them absolutely and both margs and simon as soon as they started riffing as soon as they were they were you know so confident in their characters they weren't massive changes but they made it you know they elevated it massively they made it so much better so you learned to get to the point where you could actually make a movie and get everybody behind it, right? You, you were studying on the job as you, were, as you were working these years. And now people trusted you and said, yep, I'll do your movie, right? Yeah. So what did you learn? What, do you, what have you learned for the next movie that you approach based on what you did here in terms of writing, storytelling, directing? Um, sometimes saying I don't know is, is the best answer you can give. Huh. Yeah, because it is really important to, to, it's really important to have a plan and it's really important to be decisive when you can be. But what I, what I learned very quickly was that sometimes like being able to approach, you know, being saying, I don't know, what do you think is often a really good way of like eliciting, you know, HODs and actors and, and whoever to, to sort of, you know, to, to, to give you something great back. Like I, I think one of the, the things about, directing and, and a lot actually in terms of writing is is being able to cherry pick these brilliant ideas that you know that, that the cast and the crew give you you know because they're infinitely more talented than you are frankly like you know and when 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 and they're all fighting for their own fiefdoms they're all trying to make the best film they can the most beautiful film they can the, the best sounding film they can the best edited film they can and you just you want to cherry pick those ideas and then you know pass them off as your own that's the, that's the dream, right? So can you give us a preview of what you're working on next? Um, I'm working on some really interesting stuff. I'm, I'm adapting a graphic novel called Smoketown, um, which is a brilliant piece. It's uh, uh, a series of graphic novels set in a fictitious sort of Rust Belt town. Uh, it's a small town crime thriller, uh, sort of all based around one murder and sort of all of these kind of interweaving as I like labyrinthine stories that sort of relate can't to it. Can't keep it simple, can no, you, Vaughn? You just gotta no. go in for... I just need to hide behind the word. <laughs> uh, but it's really, it's really, it's, it's an incredible graphic novel that, uh, that is on one level an, a, an amazing small town thriller and on another says so much about sort of contemporary society, uh, middle America, you know, it's, it's really, it's really, really interesting. I'm really enjoying that. Um, and it's really interesting collaborating with the the authors of the graphic novel because we sort of have a really nice symbiotic relationship because they haven't actually finished the graphic novel yet. Oh, interesting. So we've we've talked a, a few times and and I'm redconning things they they would have liked to have done better and I'm you know they're I'm giving them ideas for where I think narrative arts can go. It's really exciting. Do you think you're uh, do you think your name is going to show up on on the a third? Bit better, no. <laughs> no, that's it's a lot of fun. I'm really, I'm really enjoying that. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a really special piece. I think. I, I, I hope I can do it justice. And now, and will that, uh, you know, this will it be produced by Lucky Chap, or are you going to? No, this uh, this one isn't with Lucky Chap. Actually, I'd love to. I mean, we'll definitely work again, mm-hmm. uh, work together again soon. Um, but they've got, I mean, they've got some incredible projects that they're onto, uh, onto now. They're doing brilliant stuff. 
Uh, I'm working with David Barron, who is uh, what the producer I was telling you about earlier. Uh, we're developing a, a really interesting sort of sci-fi chiller together, which is something that I'm 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 very passionate about. I think it's a really interesting story and, and a very relevant one for today's world. Um, and that's in addition to the Rust Belt story. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so is that also feature? That is also a feature. Yeah, they're all they're all features at the moment. Actually, I'd like I would I'd be really interested to to write television and write episodically as well. But um, yeah, I, I just can't do two things at once, and my head's in that space at the moment. Yeah, uh, you know we haven't. I mean, these are independent projects, and you've been lucky enough to get you know a production company behind you and all that. Um, were you on any of the funding ends yourself, or was that let's stand back and let the producers no? Do I was their job? I was sort of in it in it all the way um because we so we introduced uh, terminal uh, the efm in berlin in 2016 margot and i um that's the european f- uh, film, market. film market yes sorry so, um uh, and we so we had previously been we uh, we so, sorry we started terminal was uh, financed through highland film group um e, who are a us-based company and they brilliantly took a chance on a you know arrogant assistant director you know who had a script and kept waving it around. Uh, so you got financed off of the script we got, so, through EFM, or that was your introduction so we took, to we, them? We took, uh, oh, no, sorry. We, we'd met them before in 2015, but we took the script We took the script to market, as it were. We took the film to market uh, because foreign sales, obviously, especially in independent cinema, generate a lot of uh, production budget. Mm-hmm. You know, you effectively, you, you sell the future rights to the film. So Margs and I went and we were kind of very much for, for a sort of whirlwind two days of, of meeting with, with uh, distributors and meeting with financiers. And we, um, yeah, that, that was kind of a, a sort of baptism of fire into the, uh, the financing of independent cinema. <laughs> um, I, I teach at the AFM every year. So we've, we've had a couple of shows around the AFM. Um, so is there... Are there tips that you can give people if they go to a film market with script in hand that they can, they can alter their pitch to meet the needs of people at a film market? It's a very different kind of 100%. audience that yeah, you're dealing so with. And a lot of people are thinking money. Yeah. Um, were there certain, again, you're, you're so good with words. Um, <laughs> were there certain buzzwords <laughs> that, that, uh, that you felt worked in a market situation? Um, the thing with distributors is, is for the most part, they're fans of film. Like they do it because they love film. Like they're involved in the business side of it. But but you know they they love hearing about they love hearing about ideas. They love hearing about you know you know what's interesting, what's original, what's unique. And in in so many of the meetings that we we had, um, they really responded to the idea of doing something. You know, Terminal was designed to be unique and eccentric and quirky, and it it riffed off genres and and sort of film styles that we hope are commercially viable and we hope people will enjoy it but you know in in terms of distributors having having a you know again being able to communicate it the ideas behind the film and what you want to do with it and the demographic it's it's aimed at is vital of course but i think at the same time being able to excite them and being able to so that they can feel your vision and they can feel confident that you know, their money is going to be well spent and not smashed up the wall somewhere. <laughs> but maybe, maybe as film goers and people who are excited by movies, having I would imagine comp films, right? Comparisons where Absol- you're sorry, growing uh, yeah, out. Yeah. So it's you oh, know, you mean more sort of practically, like yeah. yes, absolutely. So so know your comps, know know uh, no yeah, no comparable films. Go with a visual, 
you know, go with a package, go with, go with visuals, go with, um, go with tangible things that you can show them. And, you know, reference is a great thing. Things that they can, they can begin to, to sort of gauge what your idea is going to look like. I, that was very, that was very helpful for us. Yeah. Visually, did you already have a trailer or did you have, you know, just a, a lookbook or? We had a, we had a really developed lookbook. Um, I was very lucky. I mean, I, the HODs who, who worked on Terminal gave us kind of so much that Julian Day, for example, the costume designer, who's an astonishing, astonishing costume designer and did the most amazing job with Terminal. He very kindly pulled together a lot of reference, which really helped in terms of explaining the sort of, you know, that period anachronistic stylized feel. And I, I think people really responded to that. Um, we had an amazing concept artist do some great stuff for us, a guy called Matthew Howard, who, who drew up, it, it, you know, it was quality over quantity for sure. Like, I think we drew, we, we storyboarded a couple of scenes uh, in a very kind of elegant style that really reflected what we wanted to do with Terminal. And we drew some concept art as well, which I think really helped. And we had a very impressive package, actually. It really, it was something that you could kind of look at and see where we wanted to go with the film. I like what you said, quality over quantity, because some people are like, and look at this, and look at that, and, that, and all it does is sort of bury people. 100%. Right? As, if, as opposed to, this is my very clear, really well-crafted vision. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, I, I guess it's the same with anything in business, which I know absolutely nothing about. But, you know, you want to be concise and precise and just convey your ideas quickly and effectively. And if you give someone like a 50-page pamphlet they're not going to respond to it if you can give them you know 10 pages of of you know really carefully worded and really carefully thought out reference points uh, i i think it makes all the difference it was actually it was david barron who who really spearheaded that and it was a massive help massive this has been very very helpful i think i think also just going back to the fact that you started you know as the equivalent of a pa you know, and that wasn't that many years ago. And so anybody who's listening right now, you know, the, that job that you have, the people that you're working with, they could go on to be your co-producers a decade later, right? In, in, yeah. in, in, in creating something that is all yours. Pay attention to the people around you, what you're learning, and, the, and, and make friends, right? It's, yeah, I mean, you could, I, I think film is incredible in that way because it is so collaborative and if you are if you are good at your job you will you will rise up through the ranks you absolutely will like it's it's really performance based film you know and it's look it is it's it's um you know it's highly competitive of course it is because you know there are people are passionate about doing it and people work very very hard they work very long hours often for pretty bad money because they do something they love and look if we wanted to be rich we'd be bankers right we we love it like we we want to we want to be involved in it. We want to be part of that artistic process. And for me, like I, you know, I, I was very lucky in that I went to a school that had some amazing teachers that made me fall in love with film. And I went to a great university where Simon Pegg actually went as well. And was, oh, felt what, very, what university oh, it was is university that? Of Bristol. Give a shout out. Okay. Oh, university. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, you know, among we, I, I really enjoyed my course. It, it, there was too much, you know, for me, too much theory. I needed to learn it practically. Um, and then, you know, I, I just fell on my feet in terms of um, in terms of I, you know, I made good tea and ran around a lot and you know turned on air conditioning units and all other stuff and you just get onto a team as soon as you get you get onto the ladder you can move your way up you know just you know go for it like it's great it's fun it's just another day at the Dream Factory. <laughs> and thank you so much for being here. I That's appreciate it. Where should people go to see Terminal? Uh, 
to selected cinemas on Friday the 11th. For American uh, audiences. American audiences, yes, mm-hmm. so May the 11th. Uh, UK dates, European dates to be released soon. Uh, and it's available on VOD and digital HD as of May the 11th as well. Excellent. Thank you again. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, are, do you do social media? No, no. Okay. My wife says I should, but no, I don't know how to do anything like that. No problem. Leave Von Stein alone. Just leave him alone. <laughs> no, <I don't. laughs> Go away. <laughs> um, but, do, but do watch his movie. Thank you again for being here. Oh, no, thank you. I want to thank everybody for listening. And don't forget to go to onthepage.tv to check out the in-person classes and writing marathons here at the studio, the recorded classes, a bunch of episodes of the podcast that you might not have heard, and the Patreon page where you can support the show to receive goodies. This podcast is going up May 11th, so I'd like to turn your attention to a story analysis workshop that I will be doing here at the studio. It is good for readers and for writers, okay? It'll help you figure out how people who are covering your material actually look at your scripts if you're a writer. And for those of you who are interested in getting into development, assisting producers, being a producer yourself, you really need to learn how to write coverage. So that's what we're going to be doing. So check that out on the On The Page website. Again, thank you to Von Stein. Thanks to all of you for listening and have a good writing week. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.